0: So over the past number of weeks and months and classes in here, one of the themes that we've worked with is a series of Buddhist teachings called the paramitas, which describe one's true nature or Buddha nature, the beautiful or inherently noble qualities of heart that become awakened and developed, and blossom in spiritual practice. And we've talked about those wisdom, truthfulness, compassion, um, integrity, patience, and so forth over these months. Now, I'd like to do a, a talk that, in some way, is based on those teachings and, in another way, kind of encapsulates them. If you look at the famous Buddhist text called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which describes the last year of the Buddha's life, at the very end of the Buddha's life, as the myth and the story is told, um, just as he is near death, he travels to a little village in India and asks his attendant Ananda to prepare a place for him to lie down between two sal trees. And lying there between the trees, which then begin to bloom out of season, these wonderful flowers, he says to Ananda, this is my final resting place in this life. And Ananda, his attendant, says, "Oh." Um, blessed one, may the, may the Buddha not pass away in this miserable little daub and waddle town right in the jungle of the back of beyond. My lord, there are great cities such as Rajgir and Kosambi and Varanasi and Banaras. Why not go there and you could be honored in your dying? Um, why come to this little backwoods village in India?" Some anthropologist obviously translated this thing The daub and waddle. Um, description of it. But nevertheless, um, the Buddha, as he responds to Ananda, says, Do not call it thus, Ananda. He says, For at one time, in this very spot, King Mahasudasana, who was a wheel-turning monarch and a king, um, a rightful and righteous king, um, great in all the worlds, whose land stretched in four directions as far as one could travel on this continent into possessed the seven treasures, lived in a palace of 84,000 rooms filled with opals and jewels and silver and gold. And in all these roads um, from north, south, and east, and west, there was prosperity and justice and righteousness, and they were crowded with people and well-stocked with the abundance of food. And the population of the city was never free of the sounds of drums and music and horses and carriages and elephants and all the commerce of the world, and all of the arts of the world, do not say that this is but a and model village, for this is one of the great spots of India. just happened to be many lifetimes before. And this is where I shall die, and you can make a great stupa um, to commemorate the life of the Buddha." Now, what's interesting is if you read these stories, not just his historical documents that may or may not be so, but in a mythological way, then what you can hear in this little bit of an account is that in the middle of nowhere, in the dry season in India, in some little village, um, which doesn't look like much, um, the Buddha says, this will be my resting place, and Ananda says, but this is no place. And the Buddha replies, this is the, the center of the great kingdom, north, south, and east, and west, of justice and righteousness and abundance. And what he's saying in a poetic or a mythological way is that any place on Earth, given the proper attention and respect, is the center of the world, is the kingdom of righteousness. It's not to be found in one place as opposed to another. And in fact, perhaps, in the cities that are the centers of power, so to speak, one might not find uh, or one might lose a little bit the sense of really what it means to be in the kingdom of justice. Then Ananda asks the Buddha in this place, How then, as you are about to pass away, O blessed one, how then will we keep your teachings alive? Who will lead us when you are gone? And the Buddha replies, Do not follow another leader, Do not follow the elders but instead follow the Dharma, the teachings, the truth, the way things are, the law." And in some of his last words, then he offers first these teachings. As the Blessed One spoke to the disciples between the two trees with his head to the north, saying, "'I am weary and have laid down, and these trees are a mass of bloom out of season, and heavenly flowers and music come from the sky, in reverence for the successor, successor of the Buddhas of old. But it is not thus that the Buddha, this Buddha, will be rightly honored. For the brother and sister who continually respects all the greater and lesser teachings, who is correct in life and walks, according to the precepts of compassion and integrity, he who rightly honors and reveres the Buddha by action and deed, thus one is the follower of the Blessed One." And then again it was asked in this same discourse, How will it be that we can sustain the teachings after you are gone? And the Buddha says, as long as the followers of the way hold regular and frequent assemblies, may they be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they meet in harmony and break up in harmony and carry on their business in harmony, as long as they follow the teachings that have been authorized and follow them without abolishing those trainings that transform the hearts, as long as they respect and revere the elders among them, the fathers and mothers and leaders of the community, as long as they pay respect to those who are vulnerable, to the young and the weak, as long as they are devoted to care for the environment, as long as they preserve their personal mindfulness so that in the future the good who are among them, the companions will come to join them out of respect, then the community and those who follow may be expected to prosper and not decline. So all these are words from the ancient teachings about how one finds the Dharma, where one finds it, any place where there is respect and virtue and integrity and justice, and how one keeps it alive. How do we keep a sense of the sacred alive in our life? O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you really are. So in this talk, I would like to tell a story, which I do every year or two on Monday night. It's a story that's great fun to tell, um, that comes from the Arthurian... Uh, Legends. So first we had the mythology and legend of the Kingdom of Righteousness in India. And so it happened in the story that King Arthur, who was traveling on his great horse out through the wilds of his kingdom, exploring the farthest reaches of the kingdom, found himself lost in the deepest part of the woods. And as he got further and further into the depth of the woods and further and further away from finding any trail back, a great thirst came upon him, and the night was falling. The crickets that you can hear were starting to make sounds, and he realized he would end up spending the night in this great and dark forest, perhaps with nothing to eat or drink. And then he came upon a clearing, and in the clearing was a beautiful Limestone well. And he looked down in the well, and sure enough, the water was clear and limpid. And he took the bucket that was there and lowered it into the well and brought it up and tasted the water with his finger, and it was indeed clear and delicious. And he drank deeply of it and sat down by the well, quite satisfied to spend the night through his cloak on the ground. And as he waited, the moon rose, and all of a sudden, in the distance, he heard the sounds of a horse, the hoofs of a horse coming up. You know how that goes in these stories. (laughs) And he sat up, who is coming in this great deep forest at night in the woods. And as the horse, the sounds of the hoofs grew louder and louder and he could tell it was a great horse indeed. This amazing white horse appeared with a woman riding He could tell it was a woman from the long hair and this great cape and the saddle which was embroidered and embellished with gold and silver and the most amazing um, sparks of moonlight off the dazzling um, texture of her cloak. And he thought, now this is really going to be something. And the (laughs) horse pulled up and she turned around to look at him to ask the question, who is drinking from my well? And all of a sudden, as she turned her face, he saw a hag unlike a hag he had ever seen before. One eye was kind of hanging out this way, and her face was uh, misshapen and hair sprouting from different parts. And the hag, in fact, was the hag that we know in all the great stories. She, In Ireland, she's called the hag of Bera, and in uh, the folk tales of Russia, she is called Baba Yaga, uh, and in India she is known as Kali, and she is the one who stirs the pot that contains all the things of the world. She makes the medicine of the world. She creates the world out of her pot and destroys it all. She is the source of all things, and she appears as the hag, as the wise woman, as Kali, and as Baba Yaga. And she looked at him and said, you have drunk from my well, and he said, yes, madam somewhat taken aback. And she said, I did not give you permission to drink from my well. Do you go around taking things from people as a common person, or are you a king? She knew indeed quite well who he was. And he said, I'm not a common person. I am King Arthur, etc., etc. And if it is in my power to bestow in return a blessing for this gift of water, and perhaps you might tomorrow show me the way out of this deep forest. I will then grant you whatever wish is within my power. And she looked at him and said, well, as a matter of fact, (laughs) there is something that I've been wanting. I know that in the knights in your court, there is one who at this time is the greatest of your knights, Sir Gawain. And I would ask, if I might, for his hand in marriage, for I am lonely here in the forest." Uh, and the king looked at her and said, uh, he gulped and thought about going back to talk to Sir Gawain. <laughs> said, Well, that is quite a request, but I did say if there was anything in my power, and I suppose it is in my power, um, but I do want to ask you, you have asked so much from me on this request. Um, the most handsome and noble of my knights uh, is there nothing else i can offer you in his stead or to release you from this to release uh, me from this promise and she looked at him and she said well perhaps one thing she said i have a question and if you can answer this question then correctly then I would be satisfied to release you from your promise. And here is the question. You must return here within the next year and tell me what it is that women really want. (laughs) And if you answer that question correctly, then I will release you. And if not, I would marry Sir Gawain. So Arthur slept, but not terribly well, (laughs) and in the morning the hag appeared again and said, Let me lead you out of the forest, and oh, tell Gawain I am looking forward to meeting him. (laughs) And Arthur went back to the great palace, and there were the knights, and they said, So have you had any adventure, sire? And he explained, I had an amazing adventure in the forest and told all the story, except there was one small thing at the end, yes where I offered in my kingly way anything that I might give in return for this gift of being led out of the forest and the water. And she simply asked for the hand of Sir Gawain in marriage. And everyone heard that, and being knights as they were, brave as they were, they paused for a moment. There's a the limits to being brave, it turns out. And then, then he explained, but there is a way out of this promise. And sent them out across the land for that year to collect, with big notebooks, all the answers of what it is that women really want. They started to write down um, possessions, a beautiful home, many children, um, uh, 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 the gift of free time. Um, just went page after page after page of uh, of things that one might imagine that women want, or answers that people were giving. And they thought, surely if we fill the books and bring them back, we will have somewhere in there the right answer. Ah, gold and pleasure and power, or maybe just to be left alone, you know. (laughs) Depends who you talk to. Love. Finally, they returned after a year. King Arthur back, found his way in the dark forest of the well, with all these great books and said, I've returned, and I've come to answer your question. And here among these must be the answer, and presented her with these great books, and began to read out one after another, love, and power, and pleasure, and gold, and children, and everything you could imagine. And she shook her head, no, 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 and no. And finally she said, you have not answered the question. He said, I have not. She said, no, and therefore I will return with you, and I would like to have a fine wedding. And he said, well, we can do a wedding, indeed, if that's what has been promised. She said, yes, I would like you to make it a huge royal wedding. And he was thinking, well, Sir Gawain actually was more inclined for a rather private affair, but (laughs) if you insist. So they went back, and there in Arthur's palace, they brought the musicians and the courtiers and the great food and banquet and so forth, and had this amazing wedding. And everyone was saying, this seems like a bit of a mismatch here between Sir Gawain and the hag. (laughs) And when it was done, they retired to the bridal chamber. And it was the evening of the wedding, wedding night, and the hag sat down on the bed and looked at Sir Gawain. And he sat in his knightly way, in a chair nearby. And she said, It's time, my lord, to retire. Will you not retire with me? He kind of just looked at her and he said, Do you not wish to kiss the bride? He said nothing and finally said, I've heard you are a brave knight, sir. (laughs) And this, perhaps, is a test. Do you not wish to kiss the bride? And so he, being challenged in that way, walked over and sat down on the bed next to her and gave her a genuine kiss. And in that moment, as in these stories, she turned into a marvelous and beautiful, stunning, um, gracious, Um, a warm-hearted princess of the kind that even Sir Gawain had only imagined. Imagine his great fortune. (laughs) He said, Oh, I'm so pleased. And she said, Yes, through the blessing of your kiss, uh, you have freed me in part from a spell. But only halfway, sir. He said, halfway. She explained, She said, Yes, you have freed me, and so now you have a choice. She said, I can be in this beautiful form for you all night long, every night, as you wish, but in the daytime I will revert to the form of the hag, and that's how we will travel through the land. Or, if you wish, I can be your beautiful princess, as you see me now, on your arm as we travel through the lands, but then at nighttime I will revert to the form of the hag. Which will it be, great knight?" He thought about it. (laughs) It's a tough choice, right? (laughs) And finally, he looked at her deeply and said, to tell the truth, my dear, because she was in this beautiful princess form, he said, I cannot know which is best. And so the choice I would make would be to offer you the choice, which would you prefer, to be beautiful in the day or at night?" And the moment he said that, she laughed and embraced him and said, "'You have broken the spell, for you have answered the question of what it is that women really want.'" And what it is, in this story anyway, you can look for yourself to see, (laughs) what it is that women really want, in the simple language of that time, is their sovereignty. Sovereignty is a great and wonderful old word. The sovereign is the king or queen of the realm, is the respect for their own being in all its beauty and glory as they are. And having offered that respect to her, I will not choose but I will allow you to choose. He freed her from that spell. So that's how the story is told. To awaken in the path of liberation, the path of the Dharma, we too need to find the source of respect that is within us for this life that we've been given and all that presents itself to us. The teachings of the Buddha are really the teachings of dignity or sovereignty. And it's beautiful if you read all these ancient dialogues of the Buddha meeting people and talking to them as they came to see him. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these dialogues in the sutras or the stories that are told. After the conversation, usually enlightening, but whatever happens, people will ask the Buddha questions and you will give teachings. and. Often, there's some great awakening that happens. And then at the end, there's a line that the Buddha says almost inevitably before the person leaves, the last line. They pay their respects to one another, and the Buddha says, Now it is time for you to do as you see fit, over and over again. It's as if the Buddha said, Here's the Dharma, here's the teachings, the way the world works, and now it is time for you to do as you see fit. He pays his respects to the sovereignty of each person who comes to see him. They are each respected for who they are. To be awake, to awaken the Buddha nature within ourselves, is also to see that Buddha nature in every other being, to see that each act can be an act of presence and dignity and respect. This from Thich Nhat Hanh. Speaking of walking meditation. Place your foot on the surface of the earth the way an emperor or empress would place their seal on a royal decree. A royal decree can bring happiness or misery to people. It can shower grace upon them or it can ruin their lives. Your steps on this earth can do the same. If your steps are peaceful, the world will have peace. If you can take one peaceful step, you can take two. You can take a hundred. You can make a lifetime of your steps through this world. So the quality of sovereignty, of dignity with our steps, with our words, with our deeds, to bring a, a, an attentive and caring heart to each action. When you live in the monastery, the monks and the nuns are taught to be respectful of the grasses and the rice fields and the food that's offered in our bowls and the supporters who wait in silence until the monks have chanted and begun to eat before they eat and of the elders in the forest, and of the animals that we share the forest with. As one poet said, the earth is crammed with heaven, every common bush a fire and a flame. And in the monastery, part of what one learns, even from the very first day, is a quality of bowing, a quality of respect, for every being that enters and every being that leaves and every being that lives there. Now, this quality of respect is necessary even for terrible things. We need respect for the fact that there still are tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in the world. We can't turn away from them or pretend that they don't exist. We need respect for the fact that these drumbeats of war are trying to carry the entire nation into this Middle Eastern conflict that can end up with um, the loss of tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of human lives. Whether things are beautiful or whether things are terrible, They equally need our attention and they equally need our respect. The beauty of the world and the suffering, the justice and care we can give to one another, and the racism and the conflict, the prisons that we build, all ask for our careful attention. In the teachings of the Buddha, the central practice that threads throughout all the traditions of the way of the elders, of Zen, of the Tibetan practices, is the practice of wakeful attention or mindfulness, what I sometimes translate as sacred attention. And the key to this quality of attention is respect, to listen and learn from what is here and now. It is that way that we learn compassion. It is that way that the heart becomes free. In the foundations of mindfulness, of awareness, we bring respect to the body. It's an amazing thing to be incarnated into this human body with its particular shape and hair color and form and size and so forth. I mean, do you ever look in the mirror and really look at your body? Well, who is that person? And is this who you are? Or do you just rent it for a while, you know, from Avis or something like that? <laughs> a lot of us don't want to look, actually, because we have all these ideas about how it should be, and how it's not the way we would like. I remember very well the, the account that was written by a young woman who got into Buddhist practice. Um, With a disability, she was born with the lower part of one of her arms missing. And she talked about how terrible it was growing up. She would be with her parents, and they'd get on an elevator somewhere, and some little child would say, What happened to her? And the parents would say, Shh, don't say anything. Don't look at it. And she said, So I never looked. I went to the Zen center to learn to sit in meditation, and everyone had this little kind of circle they made with their hands at their navel in this formal Zen mudra. She said, and I did it with one hand. I, couldn't, I didn't have another hand, and I didn't know what to do, and no one talked to me about it. I just sat like this. She said, I was 25 years old before I ever really looked at my arm. All those years of not looking at her own body. I think we've all done that, or most of us in some way. And to listen with respect, to learn the awakening of our own Buddha nature is to treat this breath and body with uh, reverence and a bow, to really look and see what is this body and what does it ask of us, to listen for, for the wisdom of the body, to treat it with a kind of sovereignty. When you sit in meditation, It's great because the body reminds you. You close your eyes and it says, Remember me, if it's tired, or if it's tense, or or if it's, you know, if we're sick, or whatever the body needs, it begins to tell our its story to us if we are willing to listen. The same to the heart. We sit and all the feelings, the tears that we haven't shed because we've been too busy running around, we close our eyes, and all of a sudden the uncried tears will rise to the surface. Or the longings, or the love that we haven't expressed. Or the connectedness that we wish we had with one another but have been too busy to offer our respect to. The goal of community is to create a safe place. Safe because no one is attempting to heal or convert you, to fix you or to change you. The members accept you as you are. You are free to be yourself. And being so free, you are free to discard defenses, masks and disguises. Free to discover your own psychological and spiritual health for yourself, and for the world. This is Scott Peck describing community. So just as we give respect to our bodies, or as we give a mindful respect to our feelings, so too we can offer that spirit of respect for one another, for this person that we are in communion or community with to be seen as they are and respected as they are. Respect for the mind, which creates so much trouble for us, and also creates so much interest and excitement and understanding. The mind can do anything, as you've noticed, and it has a life of its own. mind has a mind of its own, and as we've said often on retreats, it has no pride. It will do anything. You sit in meditation and you tell it to do one thing or another. It doesn't listen. It goes its own way. So you bow to it. You say, oh, there's the judging mind. There's the sad mind. And there's the longing. And there's the planning mind. Do you know all those minds? The thousand minds? This one and that one? The idea isn't so much to fix them, but to know them for what they are. And then there becomes the space of choosing what it is that we will follow. Respect then becomes the language for the attention of the heart that doesn't try to say what you or you or you should do, but rather respects the dignity of things as they are. Even the dignity of the difficult things of greed or jealousy, if any of you have ever been jealous. It's such a powerful state. It's like being visited by by the gods of jealousy. One gets filled with it. Very powerful. Oh, jealousy, yes. Thank you for your story. (laughs) Amazing story. And the truth is, right now, most of us, or many of us, who read the newspapers and watch the television and so forth, also are carrying the pain of the world, the apprehension of the political situations and the difficulties. So what to do with this? First of all, it requires our respect. This is the way it is. It's not easy to carry it. I remember last year, being at a men's retreat a year or so ago up in Mendocino. And we came to a great deal of heat and conflict in this men's retreat with Luis Rodriguez, Michael Mead, Maldo Somme and part of it was around men and uh, conflict, men and fighting, and men and guns, you know, and who had had guns in their lives and what they thought to do with them. And when things were getting very heated in this room, all of a sudden, one man stood up, kind of a middle-aged guy, and he said, "You know, he said uh, when I was a young man, he said I'm Jewish, and I was very inspired by uh, when I was a young man by some of the vision of the creation of Israel as it, as a, especially the kibbutzes and the notion that it would be a beautiful place, a garden that was created in the Middle East, and I went there." age 21. But when I told them I wanted to live there, they put me in the army, because that's what you had to do in Israel. It's not what I expected, but I said, all right, I'll go in the army. And they trained me to hold a gun and to fire mortars and rockets and, and automatic rifles. And then it was time for me to do my service, and I was sent to this outpost in the northern part of Israel this little outpost, and several of us as soldiers to make sure we were guarding the country against the enemies. And there I was with this gun in my hand one day, and I was looking out at the hillside across from our outpost, and all of a sudden, across the hill, walked this little Palestinian girl, maybe eight or nine or ten years old, a goat herd. With a whole flock of her goats, and I'm there with my gun trying to protect us from the Palestinians, so to speak. And there she is. She didn't know I was there. There were just the goats in the hillside this day. And then once the goats started to eat on the hillside, I was watching her, and all of a sudden, she didn't know anyone was around, She threw out her arms and she did this beautiful dance for about a half an hour in the sunlight, in the middle of the goats. And I was holding this gun and I began to weep. And I said, how can we shoot these people? How can we shoot these people who are no different than our own people, than our own children, the the human beings of this earth? And I put my gun down and I went back and I resigned from the army, and I left Israel, and I decided that I would never carry a gun again. That was his story. For us, we are faced with a world that has conflict, and in those conflicts, what you can see at the essence, at the core, is a lack of respect between of the Israelis for the Palestinians and the Palestinians for the Israelis and of the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats or the in Kashmir between the Muslims and the Hindus. And in political and power ways and having to do with money and oil and all these kinds of things, people are playing on the fears of one another and trying to get people to imagine how evil and awful those other people are so that they will lose their respect. spiritual practice is to see things the way they are, to bow to them, and to offer our respect. The blessings of the Dharma. We're trained so much to do and fix and take care of and try to own and change things. But the first step is just to offer respect. The Buddha said, this land is mine. These children are mine. These are words of folly from a man who does not know that even he is not his. We lay claim to things out of our greed, out of our attachment. Our children aren't ours. If you try to possess possess your children and control them, you will have a very difficult number of years, I assure you, because they don't like it and they won't follow it. We can either live with the body of fear, the small sense of self, or we can release that small sense of self, the body of fear, with a shift of identity to live with graciousness and respect for the sovereignty of others. And that is the key that changes our own body and mind, and all those whom we meet A story. Here was the victorious World War II soldiers who were wending their way to the center of the city, armed to the teeth. In the face of these expectations of violence and possible rape, My father had closed the door to our house in Germany, but did not lock it. With his wife, daughter, and other family guests in the cellar, he waited upstairs, no doubt in prayer. When the Russian soldiers approached, pounded on the door with their guns, father opened it and stood before them in a way they could not have expected. He pushed aside their rifles and gestured they should come in as if they were invited guests. Of course, a soldier's attitude at such moment is one of suspicion. After years of war, they want to survive. They're ready to shoot before they're shot. But perhaps they saw in my father's gesture that their fear was not necessary. Yes, they looked in the house to see if it was a trap and found it wasn't. My father could see that they were relieved. They took off their rifles. And then my father called all of the others up from the basement He introduced us, and he was able to create such an atmosphere of welcome, of trust, of love, and respect that the soldiers were moved to share from their own meager rations. They could see how thin and hungry we were and frightened, for the city had been cut off for quite some time, and they shared with our family and guests from their own food. The quality of respect. To listen with a respectful heart expands the sense of who we are and who we can be. In this world of discord and fear and possessiveness, we have to find some other way to move and to live. I like the listening, the compassionate listening project that was started by the Fellowship of Reconciliation many years ago. Been sending people, based on kind of the Quaker model of deep listening, been sending people around the globe for decades to listen to the people that nobody else wants to listen to. You know, your basic axis of evil people, right? I mean, I did see a cartoon after the Bush axis of evil speech, which was the other folks who were evil people who were left out, kind of moaning their fate. I think it was Muammar Gaddafi and, you know, Slobodan Milosevic and stuff, saying, why were we left out? We're as evil as the rest of them. How come there are only three evil people? Don't we count anymore? And so forth. (laughs) But in truth, this group sent people during the conflict in Nicaragua to listen to both sides. They sent people to Libya to sit down with Muammar Gaddafi and try to hear his experience of life and why he was so angry. They sent people into Lebanon to listen to all the sides who'd been battling for years, and into Armenia. They took people, sat them down, and said, we really want to know your experience. And the belief underneath it all is that if we could listen and understand deeply, that would go a long, long way to solving the sorrows of the world. Now, if you're skeptical about this, try it in your own family, see how it works. When you're in conflict with somebody, you have two choices. One is is to get defensive, you know, what did you mean and how come and, and so forth, and go for it, and you know how that ends up. You've all done that. The other choice, instead of being fearful and defensive, is to become interested and respectful and say i really want to understand what is going on for you you can say the very same words what did you mean in different tones of voice what did you mean you know or what did you mean and they will lead you down two entirely different roads in your family i assure you try it or in your work or in your community. The quality of respect or sovereignty. A little story. A man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he'd been told the stuff was good for dogs. Each day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force its jaw open, and pour the liquid down its throat. One day, the dog broke loose and spilled the oil all over the kitchen floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the oil up and then lick the spoon. That's when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the cod liver oil, but his method of administering it. It's so hard. I mean, I look in my own marriage when Liana and I are having a really hard time. You know, and generally it's because one or another of us feel like we've done all that we can do and it's the other person's turn. It's like, you know, um, it's, it's your turn to be the grown-up today, basically, <laughs> right? We're tired. We don't have enough energy. I want to be cared for. It's my turn or something like that. And all that's needed in that moment is a moment of respect. And there's no one who doesn't long for and love this respect. The elderly, the young, teenagers, people who are angry or sad, the environment, those who are disenfranchised, the rich, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, animists, atheists, it doesn't matter. The quality of respect is really the quality of the heart's attention to another and to ourself, to things as they are. You know that little story that I love to tell of the kid who went with his parents to the restaurant one day, little seven-year-old boy, and the waitress was taking all the orders. He was the only kid at the table, and finally she said, and what would you like? And he'd said, oh, I'd like a hot dog and a root beer, please. And his mother said, he'll have the meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and a glass of milk. And the waitress, as she was leaving, looked at him and said, would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? (laughs) When she left, he looked around the table and said, she thinks I'm real. (laughs) Can we actually listen in that way to our bodies? to the longings and the values and the deepest love of our heart as we walk, as we eat, as we encounter one another, to our joys and sorrows. And then we can we bring that to this earth, which so deeply needs it. Okay, you say, but what about the real difficulties? What about whether it's Kosovo and Bosnia and so forth, or the Middle East, or Northern Ireland, or what about the situations of child abuse? What do you do when you see a child that's being hurt? You have to be really careful, don't you? Because if you say anything at all, the minute you disappear, that person who is hitting or abusing the child may actually do more. Oh, you caused that person to speak to me and stuff, I'll show you, isn't that right? You understand what I'm saying? You have to approach the situations of suffering with the greatest respect of all. A story. Where are we here? Now, there are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. Anti-crime guys say, you have to think like a criminal. And some police learn that so well, they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves. How I'm working with it is pretty different. I see that humans are essentially pure and good-natured. That's who we are by birthright. And that's what I'm affirming in the course of the day on the job. In fact, that is my job. The cop part of it, well, they call us cops, To me, my job is I'm a peace officer. Now, it's interesting how this works, even when it gets to conflict. I arrested this very angry Mexican-American guy who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to a paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something. And he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him, put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And again, I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers. So when we arrived at the station, I was somehow moved to say, look, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. Now the driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. Next day, I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to the criminal court. I picked him up, and I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. And we got to a spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he paused suddenly, and so did I. And then he said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. Mm -hmm. And I felt this deep appreciation. And it turned out later that on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of bad prisons and had trouble with the guards there. And I must have symbolized something for him. And then I saw it turn around, saw a kind of healing in just a moment of respect. And so what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not this vision of our true nature has power? People will say you're taking chances, but you're taking bigger chances. If you don't have a vision, your vision is your protection on this earth. So respect, even respect for Mara. One of my favorite stories that Thich Nhat Hanh tells is when the Buddha is seated there at one point with Ananda outside a little cave that the is meditating and taking rest. And Mara, the evil one, arrives and says, is the Buddha there? And Ananda says, no, 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 he's busy, go away. You know, he doesn't want to see you and all of a sudden there's this voice from inside the cave, Ananda, is there someone to see me? Who is that? Ananda says, oh you don't want to see him, it's Mara. who says, oh my old friend Mara, please show him in and sets out a table, bring us tea please and then they sit down and look at each other and Mara says, I'm so tired of being Mara, being the evil one, it's so tough, <laughs> you know, people don't like you, they run away, you know. It's really difficult, and he goes through this whole litany of cretching and complaining about how hard it is to be evil all the time. And the Buddha says, you think it's easy to be the Buddha? You should see what they do with my teachings. It's really, it's, 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 it's really tough either way. And then they drink tea and say, well, you know, good luck to you, and so <laughs> forth. When people ask for a little attention. It is not a small thing. Uh, It's really one of the great blessings of the world to simply ask for attention from a child to an adult. It can change a child's life to give them the respective attention, from a partner, from an employee. Just a moment's smile, just a moment's kind gesture, just the caring to your own body, To the sorrows of your heart, to the circumstance of the world that asks for it, that is the gift that you really have to offer. To see the Buddha in every single being. In one way, we could see the whole practice of awakening generosity, virtue, wisdom, compassion, all the teachings we work with over the last few months, as simply the quality of respect. Respect for oneself, respect for one another, and respect underneath that for the mystery of life itself. Someone came up to the Buddha and said, Tell me, O blessed one, is the world eternal? Does it have a beginning? Does it have an ending? Where is it going, this world? And the Buddha replied, These are matters in which I have expressed no opinion. Isn't that interesting? These are matters in which I've expressed no opinion. As before, the Blessed One teaches sorrow and suffering, its causes, and the freedom of the heart from the sorrows and sufferings of the world. The Blessed One teaches that greed and anger and disrespect and hatred and delusion cause the sufferings in this human life And the Blessed One teaches that we can release our hearts from these through the practice of compassion and respectful attention. You are invited when you meditate, when you undertake a spiritual path, in whatever way you do, to return to your own true nature, to reawaken the Buddha within. And for me, my favorite picture, if you go look, there's a little hut that's here called the Gratitude Hut, just up from this meditation hall, in which we've thanked all the thousands of people who've helped over the years in building and volunteering at Spirit Rock. And in it we have pictures also of gratitude of our teachers, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Jamnian and Deepa Ma and various other wonderful teachers. And my favorite picture in there was taken a couple of years ago during the big Buddhist teacher meeting we had here with the Dalai Lama and so forth. And that's when Gosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia and one of the most respected elders in the Buddhist world, um, went out to greet the Dalai Lama as the Dalai Lama stepped out of his limousine with the Secret Service around. And they're old friends. And they saw each other and they went up and they bowed to each other. And the Dalai Lama bowed really low, and then Gosananda bowed lower, and then the Dalai Lama bowed a little lower, and then Gosananda bowed... And they they got to where they were bowing, almost touching the ground, and then their heads bumped, and they touched, and that's in the moment the picture was taken. And you see these two people, and it's really a picture of love as well as respect, of just one being bowing to another. What is it that human beings really want? Not just women, but even guys, right? <laughs> uh, there is an amazing freedom. There is a natural beauty. There is a possibility of living in this world, even with its difficulties, in another way. And we need it. As I've said in other weeks, this movement toward war is a failure of human imagination. There are other ways to solve our problems, And it begins with you and you and you and me. I was out on the Golden Gate Bridge today with uh, 400 clergy people from San Francisco and Marin. We all kind of walked together and did a big prayer event in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge. and. All these cars were going by and waving and so forth. It was just beautiful. And before we left, we kind of, we had this long line, and everyone went by, and all the clergy people, and they have really classy kind of um, outfits. I was kind of jealous, you know. There were all these incredible brocades and fancy hats and things, and here I am, you know, just, but anyway. And, and we, we bowed to each other, and it was the most beautiful thing, and it was kind of, peace be with you, or bless you, or I honor you one after another, hundreds, and it was felt so good, and all the cars were going by and waving, um, and there was an enormous support for that spirit. As Thomas Merton says, the saints are what they are, not because of their holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everybody else. That's the real blessing. Can we admire ourselves? and those around us, and treat each being we meet as that temple of respect. So let's sit for just a moment. And notice as you sit, if you can hold this body and heart and mind with all its joys and sorrows, pain and beauty, with the attention of respect. And then reflect for a moment on what else in your life, who else, or in this world, is asking for your respect. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something it is given to me to do with true respect." Edward Everett Hale. May your week ahead be filled with blessings And care And may you do that which it's given to you to do for yourself and those around you and for the sake of this beautiful blue-green globe.